So let's start from the kind of the beginning for me of when I started to really look into the ancient Egyptian light body teachings. My this quest is, begins with this. Ancient Egyptians use frequencies, lights, and a specific plant to acquire new skin. Zohar, Stargate, Ancient Discoveries. This was five days ago posted. Obscure mathematician named Dr. Charles Musaeus, or Charles Muses. He used a couple of pen names. Back in 1996, I, I happened to find myself in his former home in Denver, Colorado. It was called Falcon Wing. And it was he built it basically as a temple to Isis. And <laughs> back then, I didn't know who he was and had just begun my journey into looking into ancient Egypt. And I remember going to his home shortly after he had passed, and I was given a couple copies of his books. And it was, uh, to, to my mind, a kind of an, an unordinary or extraordinary circumstance that later had in my opinion, profound influence on, on my life and my quest. Because as I started to look into the work of Dr. Musaeus or Dr. Muses, I found some tremendous inspiration. Dr. Muses proposed that the ancient Egyptians had developed a technology, his term, in which tones, lights, and an as yet unidentified plant are used to, trig to trigger, as he said, or open a rusty valve that triggered the production of large pulses of hormones, like exdysone, produced by, similar to that produced by larval forms of insects, which allows the adult form of the insect to emerge for the, the metamorphosis, excuse me, metamorphosed form of the insect. In this way, he said, this would allow the gestation or mutation of a non-molecular body, a new skin, that would allow the survival of consciousness beyond physical death. So we're talking tones, lights, and plants that could cause or stimulate this metamorphic transmutation of our body into light, into a light being form that our consciousness could then be deposited at our time of death, and then we would continue on. This is a, a 5,000-year-old science. And as those who are uh, to my blog, readers of my blog or participants of workshops know, I have established that 5,000 year timeline as a benchmark for human transcendence, this quest that humanity has to evolve beyond our larval form, our pupil phase, the human flesh and blood phase into our ascended light being phase. And as I discuss uh, quite regularly, in Silicon Valley, Beijing, other technology centers, software engineers, designers are trying to come up with a way of creating ah. a new version of humanity using digital technology. I call it the skingularity. <laughs> Their aim is exactly the same as what the ancient Egyptians have, to create a, a new body of light into which we can copy and paste. Fuck. God damn it. Now that I have it in auto, I'm a lot spontaneous. I drove my car and then I took the auto out of the trunk myself and Shit. made it over here.
across the room by trying to set it up on the fucking table. contents of our brain, maybe even our soul, into a new body of life that will be able to continue on into eternity. So when we look at scenes such as this on the back of the throne chair of King Tutankhamun, we see an anointing scene. We also see the use of a plant. We, in fact, the, the Tutankhamun's wife, Anka Sunamun, is here anointing him with the blue lotus oil, the sacred blue lotus oil, that is going to empower Tutankhamun. It's going to transform him. It's going to raise him from a man to more like a god man. So we have a plant here, and we have tones and lights. Can you see just above the head of Tutankhamun and Akasunamun, we have the light of the Atan. I'm going to go back. The light of the Atan. This is the, not the sun, although it's symbolized by the sun, the Atan, according to Tutankhamun's father, Akhenaten, the Atan was actually the light that illuminates the sun. So think about that. What is the light that illuminates our sun? And think of the expansion of consciousness that is suggested by such a statement or a thought experiment. Well, on the back of Tutankhamun's throne chair here, he is being anointed by the tones of the Atan, symbolized by the key of life, the rays that come from the Atan culminate in hands that offer the key of life to both to both Tutankhamun and Ankasunamun. So they're being baptized in the rays or the tones of the Atan. And we have obviously lights coming from the Atan as well, and they plant. We also notice that both are wearing transparent linen garments, which as we see is going to uh, be developed as a symbol for our light body, our next level of spiritual evolution. These are photos I took back in February of Tutankhamun's throne chair. You see it with his footstool on the left and on the right. You see the winged, the winged serpents on either side of the arms along with the, the two lions in the frontal view. But on the side, we see the winged serpents, which is a very key symbol in our quest. We're going to be talking about the winged serpents as we continue here in just a moment. And so here we see that winged serpent in detail. It's very nice uh, when you're visiting Egypt these days that uh, they allow the legal photography in the Cairo Museum. We used to have to go illegal, try to snap a photo here and there. Sometimes they'd ask you to leave the museum if you got caught. So fortunately, they <laughs> loosened up on uh, the photography rules almost throughout uh, the entirety of, of all the Egyptian temples now, including the Valley of the Kings, the tombs you're allowed to take photos, whereas just a couple years ago, as a complete no-no. So it's very fortunate for us to be able to go into the Cairo Museum now and be able to use our, uh, our cameras. So here in the detail, once again, we're seeing Anka Sunamun anointing Tutankhamun. This is a tremendously archetypal scenario. We see something very similar 12, 1400 years later in the anointing of Jesus by Mary Magdalene. Same effect, 
possibly even the same oils were used by Mary Magdalene in her anointing of Jesus. In fact, there's a, a lot of research out there that, that tells us that Mary Magdalene and Jesus were part of the, the mystic tribe of the Essenes, and that the Essenes were in fact reviving the, the light body mysteries of Akhenaten, which passed through Tutankhamun and, and Ankhesenamu. So here in the Cairo Museum is a, a wonderful stella that shows Akhenaten worshiping or being baptized by the light of the Aton, the light that illuminates the sun. And in the detail, we see the serpent hanging from the disc and hanging from the serpent is the key of life, establishing this connection that the Aton does in fact broadcast or transmit keys, tones, or vibrations. Again, traditional Egyptologists would like you to consider that this is actually the sun, but Akhenaten is emphatic in saying that the Aton is the light that illuminates the sun, and our sun then becomes a sort of a step-down transformer in a way, or transmitter of these much higher frequency vibrations or rays coming from the Aton. What's interesting about this is that the Stanford Solar Observatory has recently proven that our sun, in fact, is a musical instrument. They describe it as, a, as an organ, wow. like a pipe organ. It plays over a million notes simultaneously. Wow. So maybe Akhenaten knew of one note or several keys or notes that he could bring into the earth plane that could assist us in our transformation and our ascension. Because indeed, as we follow the, the trail of Akhenaten, we're led to this contemplation that this mystic figure was in fact introducing to the ancient Egyptians some very powerful concepts about the light body, our ascension body, and about our ability to sync with keys, tones, or vibrations coming maybe even from a higher dimension. And this is what we see in these stellas here, all again in the Cairo Museum in Egypt. These would have been placed on altars and personal homes in Tel El Armana, the name of the new capital city that, that Akhenaten built. He famously shut down all of the Egyptian temples, dispatched or fired the whole bureaucracy of ancient Egyptian gods, dismantled the priesthood and told the people all they needed was one of these tablets in their home, on their altar, and that through Akhenaten and his wife Nefertiti channeling those rays, that they too could be, feel the baptism of the rays of the Aton. So what happened was, is of course, it's this, this revolution of Akhenaten spun Egypt into chaos. Ultimately, the military stepped in, and they destroyed, attempted to erase every single possible reference that existed of the existence of, of Akhenaten. So we're very fortunate that some of these tablets, some of these altarpieces, uh, have come to us down uh, through the ages, and we can stand face to face with them in the Cairo Museum. They're objects of, of immense power. This one happens to be in the Berlin Museum, the new museum in Berlin. A uh, very powerful, intimate ceremony where we see Akhenaten, again with Nefertiti, his wife, their children, all being anointed or baptized in the rays of the Aton. As we follow the, uh, Ugly the child, the daughter that's in Akhenaten's uh, hands, 
we see that she is pointing to a three-pronged glyph. This is the Egyptian glyph for mist, which could be the basis for our root word mystery. He is anointing her in the mysteries of the Atan and awakening her into this higher consciousness. In this detail, we note that Nefertiti wears a transparent linen robe with a sash. It's the really the, the key thread of all of the light body mysteries, in my view. It, it ties together the ancient Egyptian mysteries, goes through the Christian mysteries, goes right up on into, de to, into today. It basically symbolizes a lifeline between humanity and the divine realm. In Egyptian symbolism, the red sash symbolizes the afterlife garment of light, as does the transparent garment that Nefertiti is wearing. And it suggests to me that what's being shown in these baptism scenes is that Nefertiti is actually, as well as Akhenaten and her family, are all receiving the keystones or vibrations, the light praise from the Aton, and it is assisting them in crafting their non-molecular light body garment, as Musaeus described it. This process is also illuminated for us on the incredible artwork from the, uh, from the tomb of King Tutankhamun in the Cairo Museum. Uh, presently, we have all of those wonderful nested boxes that Tutankhamun's coffin was placed within. On the exterior of those coffins are scenes such as this, which describe Tutankhamun's transformation into a being of light, the alchemical transmutation of his body through the light of the stars. But as Musaeus told us, there's just there's not just the light of the stars that's involved, there's also tones and plants, possibly the plant being the, the sacred blue lotus, but possibly other plants as well. What we see in this scene is a star, probably Sirius, with three rays or beams of light coming from it. As Musaeus notes, in Egypt, the etheric or quintessence was represented in the form of a five-pointed Saba star. The word Saba or star also means door, and with the determinative for walking, which is also included in this scene, it meant passing through a star door. And it suggests to me that what they're actually talking about is Tutankhamun actually walking through a star gate. Now, was he successful in this stargate transmutation? I can't say for sure. We actually have his birth. You know, the mummification process was part of the ascension process of the ancient Egyptians. And it may be that, that part of Tutankhamun is now a star walker and that he is enjoying his non-molecular light body walking in the stars forever. So, very interesting the way this is preserved for us in the ancient Egyptian uh, temple scenes, and it's most notably here on Tutankhamun's uh, burial chest. As Musaeus continues, he tells us that the principal agent of transmutation, in addition to tones, lights, and plants, was a divine food, as he described it, that like some super royal jelly, like that of the bees, would stimulate metaphoric, or excuse me, metamorphic neurosecretory organs in the central nervous system and enable a super biological process to take place 
to mature a higher body that can transcend death and is capable of furnishing a sensorium to perceive and function in a world freer in which we are than the one in which we are currently confined. This, says Muses, was the ageless promise that ancient Egypt held forth most explicitly. So, tones, lights, plants, and some kind of a divine food. Ever since Lawrence Gardner published his books on Ormes and the light body food and manna, people have been looking at these scenes on the temple walls and wondering, were the ancient Egyptians indeed practicing the alchemy of producing white powder gold, as it's described, this, this manna or star food that we know that the ancient Egyptians claimed that they were producing that could alter the, the biological body and ultimately could feed the light body. I think Lawrence has taken us a really good way down the road here towards reacquiring these ancient Egyptian mysteries. And in our tours and in our explorations of Egypt, still documenting uh, that science. And this is what we're seeing in some of these scenes here where the pharaohs are offering that star food. And I'll go back and show that again to Horus or to various gods, including Amun, who's portrayed here. These are extraordinary scenes that basically tell the god, I know the secrets of the superfood, of the white powder gold, of the manna that feeds my light body. And I can't point to anybody today that has exactly duplicated this food, but I can say in general that we are well on our way towards attempting to find out. This celestial or star food was said to heighten the pharaoh's powers of perception awareness and intuition and was responsible for an overall transcendence of personality to the angelic state now it's very interesting in light of the research i've been doing recently that lawrence gardner maintains as do others that tutmosis the third really to give a high but to trigger and impel the metamorphic process leading to a theurgic transmutation of human nature into apotheosis. Metamorphosis, metamorphic process obviously refers to transfiguration or a change of form. A theurgic transmutation refers to the divine work. In sacred traditions, you have theology, which is God talk or talking about God. This is what theologians do. Then you have theurgy which means the divine work, to do the work of the gods. The work that the gods always wanted humanity to do was to transform into divine beings. That is the meaning of the word apotheosis, to raise from a human to a divine level. And it kind of bothers me in a way that we've gotten kind of sidetracked in the past maybe 20 years or so by assertions that the gods somehow came to earth to mine gold and that they were attempting to mine this gold, but they weren't successful in mining enough of it fast enough. So they genetically altered a primitive form of human into a worker race, into a slave race. Yep so that these new primitive humans could do the work of the gods, mining gold. That never rang true to me, even though it's virtually a religion today in the kind of 
ancient astronaut or ancient alien theorist realm, if you will. Zechariah Sitchin was the primary promoter of this idea. So I refer to this as the gospel of Zechariah Sitchin. He came up with this interpretation that these God beings came to earth, created us as a slave race to mine gold. In my view, I mean, that is possible because there's no question that the Egyptians used a tremendous amount of gold. I mean, we're talking hundreds upon hundreds of tons. Virtually everything was covered with gold. If you're walking into a temple and it had a door, it was covered with gold. Many of the scenes on the temple walls were covered with gold. Gold was practically as plentiful as sand in ancient Egypt, and they had an unbelievable mastery of working with gold. So they had to get it out of the ground somehow. Maybe, maybe they did create a slave race in order to do this. However, we also know and are told, in fact, by Mr. Sitchin himself in his speculations that these god beings were alchemists. An alchemist has as his primary goal or task the transmutation of one element into another. Lead to gold, coal to diamond, flesh to celestial flesh or our light body. So why would an alchemist need to come to earth and violate a so-called prime directive and create a slave race to mine gold for it? Why wouldn't he just take a hunk of lead and transmute it? Wouldn't that be easier? I'm wondering. Maybe they did. Furthermore, it suggests to me this idea that, again, getting back to the idea of theurgy, the divine work, that the work that we do for God and the gods is our divine work, our apotheosis to raise ourselves from humans into God beings. And that to me is the, 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 the work that I seek to, to spend my time exploring and operate from this premise that these divine beings came to earth on a mission to assist us in not enslaving us, but in our ascension. This process of ascension was overseen by these cosmic regions, these living archetypes of stellar powers. I believe that the God beings of ancient Egypt were real beings, that they were probably super high frequency light beings that could take on physical form. And to attain awareness of these star powers or star beings is one of our primary goals, if not the primary goal in our own quest for ascension. At the very top of the list of the gods of ascension, if you will, is the Egyptian god Ptah, the creator god, the craft god of craftsmen. Ptah, in fact, is the namesake of Egypt itself. The word Egypt is a Greek corruption of hygepsos, which means the house of the Ka, or light body, of Ptah. So Egypt itself is named after this very powerful god, Egypt, Egyptos. You can see Ptah in the very name Egypt. Ptah, according to Egyptian mythology and sacred tradition, came from Sirius, 
the star system Sirius. He has a wife or a consort. Dogs Her name are. is Sekhmet. As she's portrayed here, she's the lion-headed goddess and protector of humanity. When we go to the Egyptian hieroglyphic... Guys, mm. Magna is a student in the Evolve program. Let's listen to her story here. I never used to draw before. I... The dictionary, we find the business card, if you will, of Ptah. He is the architect of heaven and earth, the master craftsman in working metals, sculptor, designer, and the fashioner of the bodies of men. He was the blacksmith, sculptor, and mason of the gods. The fashioner of the bodies of men. Now, something that I'm on record of saying and kind of out here on a limb on my own is to say, well, look at this hieroglyph of Ptah. Can we see a double helix in his hieroglyph? I believe so. We also see the flag or hatchet symbol of the netter, of another term for, for the gods. And we also see a symbol for a temple. So if you're talking to a traditional Egyptologist, they're going to be kind of laughing at us at the moment with this suggestion that Ptah or the ancient Egyptians knew anything about genetics. And just because the god, the ancient Egyptians said, fashioned the human body, has a double helix in his hieroglyph, that, that really doesn't mean anything. It doesn't prove that he's a geneticist. But to me, it takes us a long way down the road towards speculating that perhaps Ptah was in fact this otherworldly being who came to Earth on a mission. He is the same as Enki in the Sumerian tradition. And returning back to Zechariah Sitchin's gospel, Enki is the geneticist in the Sumerian tradition, Sitchin says, that tweaked the human body and also created us as a slave race. And that, that just doesn't tally or reconcile with what the ancient Egyptians said about the past. Very comfortable and then possibly being interchangeable symbolically and mythologically as the same figure, but their mission is completely different. As portrayed on the, the walls of Queen Nefertari's tomb, in the Valley of the Queens in Upper Egypt, Ptah served a very powerful role. His role, according to this scene, was that he provided to Nefertari her transparent garment of life, her non-molecular light body into which her consciousness could be deposited into the afterlife. That is what these four hieroglyphs symbolize that she is offering to Ptah. They symbolize new clothes. And the way I read this scenario here is that she is thanking Ptah for the gift of altering her DNA so that her consciousness then could be amplified and she could then begin this process of transmutation or manifestation of her non-molecular light body that would put her in a similar body to what we see Ptah in here. As we see Ptah in his golden shrine, he stands on a stone block that symbolizes Mott or cosmic order. He wears a tight-fitting garb or garment referred to as the crossed garment by the ancient Egyptians, the crossed garment. He holds in his hand a combined resurrection stick that is a combination of the Uaz, Ankh, and Jed symbols, meaning life and stability. 
It's his resurrection stick that enables him to open the gates of heaven. Behind him is the multicolored stairway to heaven, the tet pillar, the power pillar. It's also symbolizing resurrection. Very importantly, Ptah not only fashioned the human body, he also is responsible for creating the ark of the millions of years or the ship of eternity, as it's also called, the craft that the soul will sail upon into eternity once it has crafted or made its non-molecular light body. In this instance here, we're looking at a, a king, one of the Ptolemaic kings from the ceiling of the Temple of Hathor at Dendera. And he stands holding his resurrection stick, sailing towards the constellation of Orion. Something that I noticed a long time ago, and what I refer to as my Robert Baval moment, that moment when Robert Baval looks at the, the, the pattern of the three pyramids of Giza, looks up at the three belt stars of Orion, and makes that mirror connection, that heaven to earth as above, so below connection. Back in 2003, I looked up at the ceiling of Nandera and said, wait a minute, the way the ancient Egyptians portrayed the arc of the millions of years looks exactly like the way modern science portrays a wormhole, or certainly the symbolism of the wormhole as a mechanism through which the soul can travel the cosmos. We all experience a birth, we experience a life, and we experience a death. That cycle is modeled by the wormhole. We all experienced an inhuman past. We didn't come from Earth originally. We came from somewhere else. We all experience a life, which we call the present. And we will all experience a resurrection in the future. We will perhaps return to the stars. And this is what we see modeled by the ancient Egyptians, is that they portray their resurrected beings sailing the stars as eternal beings on their wormhole-shaped arcs of the millions of years. This connection that I've, again, fused way back in 2003, launched me on this quest, along with this material of Charles Musaeus, to, to try to put together as much as we can about the ancient Egyptian light body teachings. And it suggested to me that if Ptah is the one who fashioned the human body, that perhaps, or perhaps he must have, tweaked our body so that it could be more adaptive to traveling the stars through a wormhole. One thing I know for certain is this flesh and blood body is not going to sit on this feathered ascension throne and travel the stars. It is only our non-molecular light body that is capable of making this journey. Here we see the Ptolemaic king wearing the crown of wisdom with his lotus craft, the Ark of the Millions of Years, his feathered ascension throne, he's got his resurrection stick, and the ancient Egyptian symbol, the key of life. In my opinion, these are all aspects of our light body, psycho-spiritual attributes. It's not like we're going to go down to Nordstrom and go buy the latest key of life. Target won't sell you, or Best Buy won't sell you the latest resurrection stick. This is all developed from within us. It's conscious awareness, opening up our brain, recognizing that our resurrection stick is probably our spinal cord system. The key of life 
in ancient Egypt is compassion in action. All of this ultimately assists us in, in manifesting our resurrection throne, our feathered resurrection throne, and opening the stargates or wormholes that take us into eternity. Nefertari, of course, is uh, also portrayed, she's, she's the wife, as I mentioned earlier, of Ramses the Great. So she's often portrayed in, in statues at Karnak and elsewhere, and even in these statues uh, here at Luxor. Dot, did you know every time you scroll on Instagram, you're helping an artist make passive income? Yes, you could be. It was here at Saqqara in Lower Egypt, which is actually the northern part of the country, that this complex was entirely developed, or excuse me, devoted to Ptah and the Stargate mysteries of the ancient Egyptians. This complex was built by the world's first acknowledged architect. His name is Imhotep. He was sort of the Leonardo da Vinci of his age, who built this stairway to heaven, and also the massive four miles of tunnels that honeycomb the Saqqara complex underneath the stairway to heaven or step pyramid are four miles of tunnels that run out into the desert. And think of just the, the enormity of this complex that, that Imhotep was able to conceive and execute a commoner by birth, Imhotep, whose name means the one who comes in peace, was the high priest of the King Zoser. He was called the son of Ptah, and he is the first human engineer, architect, and physician in history known by name. In depictions that we find at, uh, at Saqqara and elsewhere, we see Imhotep seated on his feathered ascension throne, it's feathered because it flies. Jewish mystics later called it the, the Merkaba throne. And it tells us that Imhotep himself probably ascended. He was certainly deified centuries later, especially by the Greeks, who tell us that he actually is the first human to become a god. Think about that. The first human to become a deified being was Imhotep, who conceived this whole complex at Saqqara and was referred to as a son of Ptah. Some people think that means he was actually an incarnation of Ptah on Earth. So as the son of Ptah, we can have some wiggle room here to speculate that he had the consciousness of Ptah. He may have, might have been an incarnation of Ptah, an earthly incarnation. Maybe he was channeling Ptah. Whatever way, we have to assume or speculate safely, comfortably, that he had the expanded consciousness of Ptah. This is in part what enabled him to conceive of Saqqara and to execute this incredible complex. Well, it's very interesting that the ancient Egyptians taught that by his will, by his thought, Ptah brought the world into existence. It was first conceived by thought and realized by the word. Ptah conceives the world by the thought of his heart and gives life through the magic of his word. Think about that. Think about that in light of what we know today about quantum physics and about how we have to feel it, to believe it, to see it, that if we want to manifest something in our lives, we're taught now to feel it in our heart, to feel it as if it was 
actually already in existence in your reality and to get into that emotional state of what it would be like to have experienced that new job that that item you want to manifest that relationship or whatever feel it to live it it's hot exactly exemplifies this quantum principle and then through the power of his word he brings existence or creation into existence well what is a word well our word is a vibration in the beginning was the word according to the gospel of john and the word is love so we've just circled back now to pata haven't we who through the power of his heart, through the power of love, he's able to manifest. And then assisting that manifestation is the power of his word or vibration. Isn't it interesting in that context that when we look at Pata's resurrection stick, we look to the bottom part of it where his feet would be, looks resembles, highly resembles a tuning fork. It makes me wonder if this resurrection stick is, in fact, some kind of a manifestation stick that with that Patah was able to use to transmit or to actualize his word or his thought. Excuse me, his thoughts. So, Patah, very, very powerful extraterrestrial being, bringing very powerful quantum technology, perhaps genetic technology, to Earth and infusing this ancient Egyptian civilization with his consciousness at Saqqara through his son, Imhotep. It's also at Saqqara, of course, where we find the incredible pyramid of Unas, or what's left of it. It's kind of a, 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 in a pretty dilapidated state these days. But about 60, 70 feet beneath that temple, that pyramid, we find what are called the pyramid texts. And these are considered to be among the oldest religious texts in the world. According to one of their interpreters, Faulkner, Stalin, the pyramid texts should be regarded as part of the Egyptian star religion. In fact, I would go so far to say is that it's actually the Egyptian star gate religion. Because what the pyramid texts describe is the software the Stargate metaphysics that goes with the utilization of the hardware, the step pyramid, in fact, all pyramids, including the Great Pyramid itself. In, this, in these texts, we learn of utterances that talk about the king becoming a flash of lightning. The purpose of these texts is to assist the king in the process of his divination, providing knowledge, and also magic power to the king in the afterlife. The king is entombed underneath this pyramid with these texts written on the walls. His ba or soul comes out of his body at death and can read these texts. In fact, what we're told is that these texts are actually magically active. It's not so much that the, the, the soul reads these texts, but it's more that these texts act upon in a magical way the, the soul to frequencies light and assisting it to in its transformation into Zohar, a being of light. In utterance 215, the king ascends to the skies as a star 
the king joins the sun god, Ray. A stairway to the sky is set up for me that I may ascend on it to the sky. There's a summons to the celestial ferryman. I have come to you that you may ferry me across in this ferry boat in which you ferry Stargate the gods. The ferry boat, of course, is the Ark of the Millions of Years, the wormhole-shaped boat. The king climbs to the sky in a ladder. The gods who are in the sky are brought to you. The gods who are on earth assemble for you. They place their hands under you. They make a ladder for you so that you may ascend on it into the sky. The doors of the sky are thrown open to you. The doors of the starry firmament are thrown open for you. These are all utterances from the pyramid text that tell us of the transmutation of the Pharaoh into a being like lightning and the opening of portals or gateways into the stars onto, into which the king ascends. Now, one of the most magical, in my view, of the hieroglyphs that we see on the pyramid text or in the pyramid text is this glyph here. It was pointed out to me by Laird Scranton in his book on 24. the sacred symbols of Egypt. This is the Egyptian hieroglyph to tear. Egyptian hieroglyph to tear. We see it all over the place in Egypt. So it's not just isolated to the pyramid text. But what Laird Scranton pointed out, which was absolutely mind-blowing, is that the Egyptian hieroglyph to tear symbolically matches the tearing of the fabric of space-time in a wormhole growing. Now, that's a magic moment right there, because that, that perfectly dovetails with what we have been already shown at the Temple of Dendera with the Ark of the... So if you got a chance to meet a 94-year-old multi-billionaire, chairman of now over 200 companies that he built from scratch, having grown up in... The arc of the millions of years matching the shape of the wormhole and the idea that the light body is able to open or tear holes in the fabric of space-time and travel via wormholes throughout eternity. The king becomes a flash of lightning. Well, we know for certain that the Great Pyramid itself was a transmutation machine. It's a resurrection machine. That's what the Egyptians told us. It's an ascension device. And so here's this extraordinary photo, of, actually, of a lightning bolt striking the second pyramid. And it's more than just a fun photo because it points us in the direction of the nature of the light body that the ancient Egyptians told us they were transmuting into. Lightning is plasma. You have solids, liquid, gas. And there's a fourth state of matter, and that is plasma. All of us see plasma every day in the form of our sun. Our sun is, in fact, a big ball of gas and plasma. What they're telling us is that in our light body transformation, we change from this state of matter into a higher state of matter similar to what our sun is composed of, plasma. In fact, we're told that 99% of the universe is plasma. If you K-N-O-W plasma, if you know plasma, you know the universe is what we're told. If there is NO plasma, there's no universe, we're also told. So it's very important for us to, to speculate 
um, or follow this line of, of thought that the ancient Egyptians were acutely aware of the powers of the sun and our kinship with the sun that in fact we could in fact become solar beings. Maybe another reason why the arc of the millions of years is referred to as the solar barge. Wonderful uh, uh, temple scene here, excuse me, tomb scene from the tomb of Ramses the sixth, where we see the salute to the sun as this prayer posture is called with the solar barge on it, with the divine beings traveling on the sun. The ancient Egyptians aren't the only ones to tell us that the, the divine beings are connected with the sun. Buddha uh, came from the solar clan. Christ is called the sun god or the son of God. There's many, many connections to be made uh, with the sun as a conscious entity. And the Egyptians had this really acute sense that the sun played a vital role in our ascension. In fact, they, they taught that the way to heaven was through the sun. This is what we see here with the lions of yesterday and tomorrow on either side of the, the horizon symbol, the gateway symbol, with the sun in the center, indicating that the sun is the gateway to the heavenly realm. But again, the sun is plasma. This is a state of matter that was not identified or unidentified until 1879 when William Crookes invented the Crookes tube. He called plasma radiant matter. Basically, a Crookes tube is a glass bulb that gives off fluorescent light when a high voltage current is passed through it. The nature of the Crookes tube cathode ray matter was subsequently identified by British physicist Dr. or Sir J.J. Thompson in 1897. He called it plasma or rather it was called plasma by Irving Langmuir uh, in, eight, in 1928. The cathode ray tube is something we use every day in our lives. It's the basis for television technology, your computer screen, all based on this original discovery and invention of William Crookes of the plasma tube. Now, some of you have probably anticipated where I'm going with this because you've, you may have seen something that looks just like a, a Crookes tube in ancient Egypt, and that, of course, is what we find in the, the crypt at Dendera, the Temple of Hathor, or the Temple of Love and Joy. Famously, in the 1960s and early 70s, Eric von Donikin saw the Crookes tube, or the, the, the light bulb, as he referred to it, at Dendera, and said, this is, this is evidence of ancient alien technology that this, in fact, is an early example of the use of electricity in ancient Egypt. And I think that that's entirely possible. But I also think there's a bigger mystery that is alluded to here. And that's what I want to talk about with you all today. This is uh, the Temple of Hathor at Dendera, the Temple of Love and Joy, always one of our favorite tour stops when we're in Egypt. It's one of the most peaceful places in Egypt among many peaceful places. Built around 330 BC by the Ptolemaic kings of, of Macedonia who took uh, power in Alexandria, Egypt and rebuilt many of these ancient Egyptian temples including Dendera, which they built on the pad of a former temple that once existed here. In the ceiling of Dendera, in the interior is where we see these incredible scenes of the Ptolemaic kings, these humans who have gone through this process of transmutation and attained their non-molecular light body. 
in the crypt is where we find these extraordinary scenes that Bondonikin identified as a light bulb. But what I'm going to suggest to you now may in fact be something even more mysterious than that. There are five of these chambers, these crypts underneath uh, the Temple of Hathor at Dendera. There was a statue of the goddess Hathor that was stored in here. It's a very sacred part of, of the temple. It's possible that because it's underneath the, the, the current level temple, that this may have been part of the original temple that was in place, the one that the Ptolemaic kings uh, built on top of. Here I am with my back uh, to the wall uh, that has the scene of the, the so-called light bulbs looking down uh, through the crypt. You can see it's very narrow and it has several chambers within it. And then on the wall that I'm standing at is where we actually see these light bulb scenes or so-called light bulb scenes. If they're not light bulbs, they're definitely, definitely plasma tubes. The, the, the symbolic correspondence is, is very direct. In fact, what in are they opinion, it's more direct them? than this being some kind of an incandescent light bulb. So <clears throat> where my thinking took me on this is that if this is a plasma tube, who are the beings that are operating this plasma tube? And what are they ultimately trying to show us? They're larger than the Well, here the is a plasma tube. A, a current day depiction of a plasma tube. What we see are a bunch of positrons in blue, the anter which are the antimatter siblings of electrons, traveling down the, the tube of hot ionized gas or plasma in orange. And what we see is the wake of those uh, positrons as they go through the plasma. So compare that image with what we see at Dendera. If you want to lead something, start by saying, this is what I care about. This is what I want to do and why I think you should care about it and you should want to help. Hardly a day goes by that I don't think how fast my life has flown. How I remember is if it were yesterday, the first day I became president. Hardly anything worth doing can be done alone. This is a particularly disorienting time for billions of people in the world. You've got major uncertainties about what's going to happen in the years ahead. At a time like that, you really need good leadership skills. And you need people whose goal it is to pull people together, not drive them apart. People need to feel the potential to create a better tomorrow. This class is unlike anything I've ever done. I'll be teaching skills I developed and used in very challenging leadership positions. And I hope that those skills will help you in your personal and professional lives. You'll learn how to work with people you don't agree with, <laughs> may not even like, and how to mediate conflicts. I don't believe being nice is inconsistent with being tough and smart. You gotta be tough as nails with your tender heart. I have encountered a lot of setbacks. I lost two elections after I entered politics. I've had ferocious opposition where the whole strategy was to try to destroy me as a person. My mother died after I became president. I've had a lot of things that really hurt. But in the end, the great adventure of life is what you decide to do with it. We're all 
all struggling mortals with fleeting lives who are trying to be right as often as we can and trying to live a life that amounts to something. <laughs> a good leader will share the credit when something good happens and assume responsibility for the mistakes and not look for a scapegoat. I believe leaders are not just born, they are also made. And I hope everybody who watches this will say, what am I going to do to be a better leader? I'm President Bill Clinton, and this is Masterclass. <laughs> Sounds interesting. Is the serpent a filament of a light bulb, or is it the wake of positrons going through a tube of hot ionized gas? In my opinion, it's a plasma tube, and this is what is being, is being shown to us here. There are actually three representations of these plasma tubes at Dendera. There's one upstairs in color. <laughs> that I'm showing you here with these blue beings operating the plasma tubes. Blue and there's one out back in a separate little chapel called the Isis Chapel, which talks about the birth. It's a birthing uh, chapel or chamber of, of Isis. And we also see the plasma tubes on the wall of this Isis Chapel. So these are the only three places in ancient Egypt where you will see these plasma tubes. And so they have to have some kind of powerful significance. And what I believe they, they're pointing us to is that the beings who are operating them are not flesh and blood beings. Look at the way they are portrayed on, on the wall here. They have double faces. They have double skins. That, to me, is a very telling clue. They're trying to tell us something about these beings who are considerably larger than this being who is kneeling underneath the plasma tube. You might describe them as giants compared to the kneeling figure who could be a human. Why did the ancient Egyptian artists, who do not make mistakes, by the way, their, their artistry is masterful in almost every single instance where you see it, why do they portray them with this double face? Is it because they're trying to show two people or multiple people holding or operating these plasma tubes? My opinion is that they're trying to show us that this is actually their double body. And what they're showing us is their etheric double, their ethereal body, their fog-like luminous light body. Their plasma body, their plasma body that lives in a higher energy universe. As Robert Monroe, founder of the Monroe Institute, says, the plasma body is normally invisible to the naked eye. And in order for it to be visible, it must either reflect or radiate light. I think that what we're looking at here are plasma life forms, plasma beings who have bioplasma bodies. That's the light body of the gods. These are the electromagnetic bodies which generate electromagnetic fields and radiate electromagnetic waves 
similar to the aurora borealis of our planet, which is also plasma. When cosmic rays come from the, up the sun, stimulates the ionosphere and produces this extraordinary display of colored lights. <coughs> they, excuse me. They occur when the solar wind particles trapped by Earth's magnetic field collide with molecules of air in the upper atmosphere, the ionosphere. And they produce this incredibly spectacular sight of these rapidly shifting patches of color and dancing columns of light of various rainbow colored hues. The Aurora Borealis. Now, plasma is, as I said, a state of matter. Plasma is what lightning is composed of. Plasma is what our sun is composed of. So could it be possible that plasma is what the light body of these beings are also made of? Let me bring in another aspect of this story that takes us into a, what I feel is a confirmation that these light beings are in fact lightning-like or plasma beings. When we're looking at the Dendera tube, we're, we're thinking, A, it's a light bulb, okay. B, it's a plasma tube, and that the being who is holding it is a plasma being. Third, what we're, we're basically looking at, and it's, it's simplest, most simplistic, symbolic view, is a person holding a serpent. Not only is this person holding a serpent, he appears to be lifting the serpent. You can absolutely argue that the tech column, that resurrection pillar at the very front of the plasma tube, is lifting the serpent. There's a very powerful story involving the lifting of a serpent. And that is the story of Moses, who lifted the serpent of healing in the wilderness. He raised a bronze serpent and healed the Israelites. Symbolically speaking, Moses lifting the serpent and this being in the plasma tube at Dendera are doing exactly the same thing. They're lifting the serpent. So how could this possibly play out? Well, what happens when Moses lifts the serpent of healing in the wilderness, he manifests a seraphim, a celestial being, an extraterrestrial being, an angel. In fact, the highest order of angels refer to a seraphim who are called winged serpents. I told you the winged serpent was going to be a very important symbol for us. And here it is coming back into our conversation. When Moses lifts the serpent of healing in the wilderness, referred to as the Nehushtan, the serpent of brass, he manifests a winged serpent or a seraphim. In the Jewish mystical book, the Hekelat Sutardi, we learn that the seraphim, their walking is like the appearance of a lightning bolt. That means they're made of plasma. A vision of them is like a vision of a rainbow. Their faces are like a vision of a bride. Their wings are like the radiance of clouds of glory. 
Glory means to glow rays, to glow multicolored rays. That sounds like the auric field of the earth. That sounds to me just like these, the auric field of the human body. It sounds to me like we're talking about a group of beings who are made of plasma life. Listening to ancient Jesus is Egyptian. The secret of eternal life. Whoever believes Use in him will have light frequency in a plant life. to create new skin. Jesus is equating the secret of eternal life with Moses's lifting of the serpent in the wilderness. And I am equating Moses's lifting of the serpent of healing in the wilderness with the plasma tube at Dendera. Are we talking about an extraterrestrial science of ascension that is encoded on the temple walls in the crypt of Dendera in the story of Moses lifting the serpent of healing and ultimately manifesting a seraphim and ultimately linking it with the resurrection mysteries of Jesus and his transmutation into a being of life. After Jesus's resurrection, he had the ability to phase back and forth from his celestial throne in a place called Sion or Sion, which sounds like the sun, and manifest to various avatars like St. Francis of Assisi, whereupon Jesus appears as a seraph, that there is a link between the Egyptian mysteries of resurrection and the transmutation of the king into a being of light or lightning, a plasma, Moses lifting the serpent, and Jesus identifying the lifting of the serpent as a key to eternal life and his own manifestation as a seraph when he, when he manifested or appeared before St. Francis of Assisi. You're a coach or consultant, and I want you to know that the demand for virtual speakers is huge right now. I think that that's what we're looking at when we see scenes of, for example, Horus. I think Horus is also a seraph. Remember in the story after Osiris's resurrection, he returns as Horus. And so when we see scenes of Horus, he's portrayed as this bird being, a bird figure. And in this particular scene here from Karnak, we actually see Horus standing in front of the resurrection pillar, the Tet pillar, that is flanked on either side with the Nehushtan, the serpent on a pole. That symbol occurs in almost every single temple in Upper Egypt. You will see the winged serpent, or excuse me, the, the serpent on a pole on either side of the temple gateways uh, in the temples of, of Upper Egypt. Ultimately, that's the Nehushtan of Moses. That is the symbol of the seraphim angels in Judeo-Christian tradition. I think of it as the logo of this tribe of celestial beings who are here to assist us in our ascension. It originated at Saqqara, where it was a symbol for Ptah. So to me, this symbol of the serpent on a pole, the Nehushtan, is the symbol for the ascension mysteries. Now, how can we connect Horus to the seraphim? Well, we go to Dendera, where we are at, looking in the crypt. Look on the temple walls. He's portrayed as a blue bird being. On his shoulder is a patch, a sort of patch. On his shoulder 
is a winged serpent. That is the logo of the seraphim, the winged serpents. And that tells me that Horus possibly is part of this tribe of bird beings, angelic beings, celestial beings, who are here to assist us in our ascension. In Judeo-Christian tradition, the seraphim are portrayed as red or orange because they burn. They're called the burning ones because they burn with the love of the creator or they're portrayed with six blue wings. Blue, linking them, I believe, with plasma. And in this instance here, we see the, the, the seraphim with his toroidal shaped body, a spinning super high frequency being with the uh, ophanum wheels, the winged, uh, the red winged disc that we see below. These are the angels that the Essenes were living with. And eyewitness accounts describe them as having stream rivulets of molten fire like incandescent bronze, a radiance of many brilliant colors of exquisitely hues, gloriously mingled. Many exquisite hues, brilliant of exquisite hues, gloriously mingled. They're describing beings that have rainbow-like colors coming off of them. Not only are they blue, but they have these rainbow-like colors coming off them, just like the aurora borealis, just like, like plasma. But I'm very uh, intrigued by the correspondence between these blue bird beings, these seraphim, and what we see on the temple walls of Egypt in representations of Horus, who's, of course, considered to be the Egyptian Christ. So maybe it's no coincidence that Christ himself is surrounded by blue seraphim as well as the reddish-orange seraphim, these super high-frequency beings. And when we see the, the gate of heaven being opened in Christian art at Last Judgment, uh, we see an almond-shaped gateway, the eye of the needle, that's opened by the seraphim. They are the beings that, that open this gateway, maybe even compose the gateway itself. We see Christ on a cloud of blue seraphim. So they are directly and intimately connected with the resurrected Jesus. But the point I want to come back to here is that these beings are, in their appearance, have an appearance like lightning or plasma. They are plasma beings, or I should say, what if they are plasma beings? Are they the same beings? that we see holding the plasma tubes at Dendera? Are they in fact celestial beings that are assisting us in our ascension? I believe that they are. And one more connection, when they describe these seraphim as having many colored bodies, radiating these glories of many different colors, these many different hues, that takes me to another research specialty of mine the rainbow light body of Tibetan Buddhism, where they describe our body having the ability to be dissolved into rainbow colored light, leaving behind hair, toe and fingernails. So then the body accelerates its frequency and manifests as this sort of like plasma globe of rainbow colored light. They call the rainbow light body. What is so mind blowing about this to me is that in Tibetan Buddhism, when they show the rainbow light body, and I'm going to come back here. I skipped ahead too fast. 
when they showed the rainbow light body, they showed Padmasambhava, the Tibetan guru that we see here, with an assortment of symbols, including his resurrection stick, his golden crown. He holds his Vajra at his heart, which symbolizes compassion and action to the Tibetans. And he's got this multicolored hue, this rainbow hue of radiant light coming off of his body. In the year 1078, a monk named Anselm of Canterbury astonished the world by arguing that if it is even possible that God exists, then it follows logically that God does exist. Anselm's argument came to be called the ontological argument, and it has sharply divided philosophers ever since. The 19th century German philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer called it a charming joke, but many prominent 20th century philosophers, such as Charles Hartshorn, Norman Malcolm, and Alvin Plantinga, think that it's sound. Here it is. God can be defined as a maximally great being. If something were greater than God, then that being would be God. And in order to be maximally great, a maximally great being would have to be all-powerful, all-knowing, and morally perfect in every possible world. Possible worlds are simply ways the world could have been. To say that something exists in a possible world is just to say that if the world were that way, then the thing would have existed. Let's come back to Dendera, where we see the ascended Ptolemaic king on his wormhole-shaped resurrection boat, his Ark of the Millions of Years. He has his crown of wisdom, his lotus crown, his feathered ascension throne, his resurrection stick, and the key of life. These are exactly the same symbols that we see in the Tibetan rainbow body illustration, the lotus throne the resurrection stick, the Vajra, the crown of glory, the golden rays. This led me to speculate or to surmise, to hypothesize really that the Egyptian resurrection mysteries and the Tibetan resurrection mysteries are the same thing. They're coming probably from the same source, an otherworldly or extraterrestrial source. I believe that source is Ptah. Not only is there a phonetic yeah. similarity between the name Padmasambhava, who we see here on the left, who came from India to Tibet in the 8th century to teach the rainbow light body. It wasn't the first time it was taught on earth. But his name Padma means lotus born, just like Ptah. And the similarity of their symbolism also draws this conclusion or this hypothesis that they are teaching exactly the same thing. Ptah has his resurrection yeah. stick, his rainbow-colored stairway to heaven, his light body garment. There's enough of a correspondence for me to feel very comfortable in suggesting to you, and this is an, an original connection that I've made, and I'd say that not out of ego, so that you know where this information is coming from, that the Egyptians don't say this and the Tibetans don't say this, but I'm asking you to consider that when Ptah is portrayed in this way, he's being portrayed in his rainbow light body, his plasma light body, which is the true nature of our being and ultimately the object of our ascension. So when we see Ptah 
over and over again with that feathered resurrection garment of many colors and his, his helmet of salvation, his resurrection stick, his rainbow rings or necklace of immortality, rings of gold. I am aligning that with what we see in the Tibetan rainbow body images with the crown, the resurrection stick, the Vajra, and so forth. Enough of a correspondence for us to hypothesize that there is a, a direct link between what the Egyptians are showing and what the Tibetans are showing. It carries over into the resurrection imagery of, of Osiris, in my opinion, as well, where the energy pattern of Osiris's Atef crown, his green face, symbolic of rebirth, renewal, and, re and regeneration, all match what we see in the Tibetan rainbow light body imagers. I believe, as I say, that the, 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 the source of both of these teachings is the same. It's coming from a cosmic source, probably Ptah, originally. Although the Tibetans teach that this rainbow light body teaching is taught in 13 star systems, including our own, suggesting that there's a whole network of star systems where this rainbow light body teaching is taught. Let's take this forward and look for other examples of plasma beings in ancient Egyptian temple imagery. And there are several here that are very key examples. This one was actually pointed out to me by Gary Gilligan, who notes that the image on the left depicts Amun, the Egyptian god Amun, in typical form with blue skin, yellow kilt, and red flat top crown with tall plumes segmented into sections of blue, red, and green. He notes that a thin yellow frame separates these sacred colors, and he compares them to the aurora borealis, the, the northern lights. What Gary Gilligan has, has established in his research, so were cataclysms in the ancient world. Our sky was completely different than what we experience today. The ancient Egyptians had this sky that was filled with plasma and all kinds of incredible shapes and symbols present what? in that plasma that the sun was going crazy effectively not a scientific term but <laughs> that it was causing these extraordinary light shows in our skies and oh. that what he is saying is that the gods including Amun especially Amun are really nothing more than a symbolic representation of intense geomagnetic storms that dominated the ancient skies I can go along with that. I see what he's saying, but I, I think he's falling short here a little bit by saying that the gods basically are just the aurora borealis and these geomagnetic anomalies. I think the god beings were real, that they were actually incarnate on Earth, and that, in fact, they were plasma beings like Low-income stimulus asked by the president to help us. Any American earning under $50,000, listen up. All low-income Americans are pre-qualified for $440 a month to cover all their essential needs, such as health, dental, vision, groceries, gas, and so much more. Families across the country are using this money to help them battle the rising living costs that came from the recession we are currently facing. The current situation with prices was causing me a lot of stress as I wanted to be able to provide for my family. The Aurora Borealis. As Gilligan points out, a moon's epithets are completely consistent with an aurora-filled sky. Mysterious of form, who raised high the sky, 
king of south and the north, prince of rays and beams of light, the flame which sendeth forth rays of light with mighty splendor, living flame, king of heaven, who makes light, gives free passage, secret of manifestations, sparkling of shape, marvelous God, rich in forms, light was his coming into existence on the first occasion. So he's saying this is all a description of the aurora borealis. I am looking at this same scene uh, at, at Karnak and saying, that's a rainbow light being. That, 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 that's a celestial being, like Padmasambhava or Ptah, who, who is manifest as a, as a higher frequency being who resembles most definitely the Aurora Borealis, but is actually incarnate ah. in human form. He's a bioplasma being. J. Alfred, in his book, Our Invisible Bodies, alludes to his belief or, or discusses a, a physical dense earth that he says is gravitationally coupled to a counterpart dark matter earth composed of low density plasma. The sister yeah. earth was co-created or, or co-created with the physical dense earth about 4.6 billion years ago from dark matter uh, components in the embryonic solar system. Plasma life forms evolved on this counterpart earth just like it did on the visible planet. I'm going with that as a, as a more well, certainly fantastic but perhaps I think more reasonable explanation for what we're seeing here in these temple scenes. These are plasma life forms, maybe coming from a twin earth, a plasma like earth, where these beings can phase back and forth from their plasma form into their physical flesh and blood form and are here to assist us in our transmutation into lightning like or plasma like beings so that we can then go dwell in this higher dimensional, higher frequency realm, plasma realm, where these God beings dwell. That's my theory. And that's what I'm looking at. That's how I'm reading these scenes on the temple walls uh, when, when we're in Egypt, is taking this incredible work of Gary Gilligan and the other work that Robert Schock is doing, Dr. Robert Schock, um, the Thunderbolts or people are also doing work on plasma and the plasma sky. I, I think we've got really solid evidence that in ancient times, especially in the times of ancient Egypt, our sky was very much different than what we're experiencing today. The plasma that the Aurora Borealis was seen in much further south or southern regions than it is presently. And that is a definite inspiration for some of these scenes. But that it's also pointing us to the essential nature of these beings. Amun, Ptah, some of these other beings are actually plasma life forms that can cross over into our physical world and are coming here in order to assist us in our ascension or return to our, our plasma-like form. So that's how I'm reading yeah. these temple scenes. I'm looking at this thinking, this, these are all, of course, ascension scenes, attunement scenes. And this one, in this example here, this is from Medinet Habu. We see the god Amun, who we looked at just these several examples of where he's portrayed as this sort of rainbow-like, plasma-like being. Standing behind him is a form of Ptah. Amun is attuning or gifting the king with the secret of the hundreds of thousands of years 
what this means, the way I read this, is that he is giving him the gift of eternal life. He is literally placing those secrets in the palm of his hand, which is what we see over and over and over again in these ascension stories, that the gods will assist us in the completion of our ascension by literally putting the ascension tablets in the palm of our hands. I think this is a plasma being who is placing into the hands of the, of the Pharaoh and attuning his consciousness with the secrets of eternal life, the secrets of the hundreds of thousands of years. Another example of a moon who is, again, transmitting, attuning the, the king, the Pharaoh with the secrets of eternal life. If a moon is just a, is, is plasma, dancing plasma waves coming down from the sky, why didn't the Egyptians show him that way? Why did they show him as a humanoid form? Why do they have to anthropomorphize this being? Just show rays coming down. They were certainly capable of doing that. They do it elsewhere. Ah. So why not do it here? As if he's the, the king is just bathing himself in this, in these keys of life, the shower of keys of life, or, or uh, a, a baptismal rays of, of the aurora borealis. I think what they're portraying Blue. is that these are actual plasma type beings who come out of a plasma world and are assisting us. This is a model here of uh, the temple at Karnak, where we see these, many of these incredible scenes of the god Amun. Who's gonna... 45 yeah. seconds. I'm going to show you how we earn a five-figure month income from our art in 20 days. Now look, I know you may or may not That's feel really this tough. abstract art is pretty dang impressive, but the real key here is continuously uh, built over a period of several thousand years. As we enter the Karnak Temple. See at the very bottom of the photo there, you see these rows of, of sphinxes. They're actually ram-headed sphinxes. These are symbolic of the god Amun. And in between the paws of the, uh, the ram-headed sphinxes, we see uh, the king, Ramses, who is a son of, of Amun. Beautiful, beautiful uh, temple to experience, temple at Karnak. Karnak, so majestic. Again, built over a period of several thousand of years. One of the, the figures who did uh, some of the major building at uh, Karnak was Queen Hachetsu, including the erecting of these obelisks. She actually erected four of these massive 500 ton sun sticks. And at the apex of these sun sticks, we see the, the queen herself, Hachetsu, being attuned by Amun who's sitting on his ascension throne. Again, suggested that Amun is in fact a, an actual being who could incarnate on Earth. And in fact, that, that is literally true in the story of Queen Hatshepsut, a star child who became Pharaoh, married a commoner, who discovered the secrets of transfiguration. In her story, she had a brother, uh, Tutmosis, actually Tutmosis III, uh, who was, they, they both were the son of, of the King Tutmosis I. And when her father died, uh, her brother uh, was, her cousin rather, was due to be uh, the, the King of Egypt. But since he was too young, 
she was appointed as his regent. Well, Hatshepsut decided that she herself was going to become the new king of Egypt. And so what Probably she did was something says. very clever is when she went and built her mortuary temple at Deir el-Bahari, she told the Egyptian people an absolutely amazing story. Uh, and that's me at Hatshepsut's uh, temple. Sometimes they let me drive the uh, drive the Disneyland cart that takes us from the parking lot where we put the coach up to the temple. Um, just a side note, I love going to Hatshepsut because that, that's where we often see the most, uh, the highest number of Egyptian kids, and they go nuts when they see us. They absolutely, these school kids, just, they love to take their picture with us. It's like, they treat us like celebrities over there. It's so much fun to, to, to play with these kids when we're at, uh, at Dara al-Bahari. Anyway, at this temple, Hatshepsut tells this story about her divine birth. This is the, uh, takes us into the colonnade that tells this birth story of Queen Hatshepsut, where she tells us that her father really wasn't Tutmosis I. <coughs> her father was the god Amun. She tells how the god Amun superimposed himself on her father, and that, her, that the god Amun actually impregnated her mother. And she goes into this very detailed story about how her light body was crafted by the gods, that she, in fact, is a star child who was conceived by Amun to become the ruler, the divine ruler of Egypt. She was not just semi-divine, a demi-god like other pharaohs. She was a fully divine being incarnate on earth a star child. The name she chose for herself, Mat Ke Ra, can be read as Mat is the Ka of Ra, which translated the true and beautiful manifestation of the sun's divine life force. A more poetic but still like accurate rendition is truth is the soul of the sun. So here is Hatshepsut saying, she is a child of Amun, a hybrid being, a star child. And furthermore, she wants us to think of herself as a manifestation of the sun's divine life force. The sun, as we said, is plasma. So here she is telling us that she is a star child. And maybe she knows something about the sun as a plasma life form. This is carried into the story of her vizier, her wizard, that's what the word vizier means, wizard, and her consort. Cinnamon was his, her, his name, a commoner who became extraordinarily powerful when he became the consort of the queen, who is a king. Based on his tune, Cinnamon discovered the secret of transfiguration, the metamorphosis of flesh and blood into a celestial light form, and built his own stargate in his tomb, complete with a star map that codifies the date 9600 BC, the date that Plato gave for the collapse of Atlantis. <laughs> 
beginning, after a great devastation, the gods came and manifested humans again. And this is a theme that we see repeated all over the world. There is a continuity in the stories that cannot be dismissed. One of those continuities is the story of the Great Flood. That's reflected in the Babylonian text, in the Hebrew text, in the Egyptian text. They all mention something similar. When you do a deep survey into the myths from around the world, it talks about a dark world and the end of an age. And then there's this cataclysm and this flood occurs and the individual escapes the flood. And then after that, it is the beginning of this golden age. That's ancient civilizations. Well, we're going to watch that <clears throat> on my podcast. story of a commoner who grows up becomes the vizier and architect of the queen. He designed her temple at uh, Dar al-Bahari and literally learns the secret of transfiguration, which are encoded in the walls of his tomb here at Dar al-Bahari, which unfortunately is still off limits to the public. But the entire scenes inside yeah. this tomb describe his passageway into the celestial beings into a celestial being and what is most shocking of all is that they tell that cinnamon was transfigured into a luminous spirit that the egyptians called the ox spirit and that he in fact ascended into the celestial realms so now we've come a long way we've got a little bit further to go but I'm going to take a very quick 10-minute break. Huh. It's the bottom of the hour. I'm going to come back at a, at a quarter till the hour. So in, in Nashville right now, it's 3.35. I'm going to come back in 10 minutes. I'm going to take you to Abydos. And we're going to take a look at the incredible light body secrets on the temple walls at Abydos. So thank you all for joining me. Uh, look forward to catching up with you just after the break. Okay, everybody, welcome back. Thank you for allowing uh, me to take that quick break. I hope you've uh, enjoyed what we've presented so far. It's been a, uh, quite a journey going from Saqqara to Daryl Bahari to a Jet Sup story. And now we're going to take a journey to Abydos. Abydos, the gate of the gods. For 3,000 years before there was a Jerusalem or a Mecca, there was Abydos. This was a place where the ancient Egyptians would make pilgrimages to. It was believed that at Judgment Day, when Osiris would return, that he would take the souls of the blessed, of the just, through a portal at Abydos into, <clears throat> excuse me, into the field or dimension of the blessed. And it was here that the Egyptian king Seti built the temple of Seti I at Abydos, which is what we're looking at here. In the Egyptian chronology, Seti is two generations after Akhenaten and Tutankhamun. He is the part of the generals 
of uh, ancient Egypt at here. In the Egyptian chronology, Seti is two generations after Akhenaten and Tutankhamun. He is the part of the generals of uh, ancient Egypt who were appointed to restore order after the Akhenaten revolution that spun Egypt into chaos. This temple is in phenomenal condition, and it's one of our, our favorite places to visit during our tours. It's very often not included in Egyptian tour itineraries because it's, it's off the beaten track. It takes a while to get out there. And once you're there, you're, you're just confronted with just this ancient, ancient mystery of immense proportions about how Seti was able to utilize these ancient transfiguration teachings. And I believe he did utilize them because as a matter of fact, you see something at Seti, the first temple that you don't see anywhere else in Egypt. And that something is encoded in this scene in one of the chapels in the interior of the temple where we see Seti kneeling before Isis and Osiris, or excuse me, Osiris and Amun. And in between those gods, there's this hieroglyph that we see on the right with the obelisk and the two figures and the, the hatchet symbol of the netter the of the fox. gods. This tells us that Seti <clears throat> became a god. A man became a god. He achieved apotheosis. Now, what is extraordinary about this is that his contention, as we see here on the, the temple walls, that he, that he became a god, is echoed in the story of Omsetti, a Victorian era woman named Dorothy Beattie, who claimed that she was the reincarnation of a priestess of Isis who served King Seti, and in fact, who had an affair with King Seti. But she became impregnated by the king. And rather than disgrace her priestesshood and her king, she committed suicide, breaking King Seti's heart. Beyond that, which is extraordinary, Dorothy Eady, after having a near-death experience, began recalling her life as this priestess of Isis at Abydos and described to archaeologists the way the temple looked in its original form in 1300 BC and made significant discoveries at Abydos. But what is even more significant is that she maintains that Seti could phase back into a physical existence and that they could continue and did continue their sexual relationship through his ability to harness the life force he called Sekep. Pardon me, I didn't realize my, my phone was going. This is a phenomenal story that you can follow up on in Jonathan Cott's book, The Search for Om Seti, which tells of this extraordinary reincarnation story. One of the greatest reincarnation stories perhaps ever uh, committed to pen and paper. And gives us a lot of room to think about, to speculate that Seti did in fact achieve this transfiguration 
that enabled him to phase back and forth between the dimensions, just like the gods could do, or just like we're proposing the gods could do. So it's no mistake or no accident that you will see Seti as we see him here, his hand on his door handle opening what could be like some kind of an interdimensional doorway to which he's able to access the divine realm of these plasma beings, or what are evidently plasma beings, perhaps who dwell in a parallel earth, in a, in a, in a dimension very close to ours that can be accessed from certain special places on earth or by humans who know the secret of how to open that door. These temple scenes, combined with the story of Dorothy Edie, suggest that King Seti was one who knew these secrets, these secrets of ascension. And all of the scenes at the Temple of Seti at Abydos ultimately refer to his ascension and the secrets of how he did it. It's an exquisite temple. It's in gorgeous condition. And when you visit there, you know you're in a place of immense secret power. One of the fun things we like to do is there's this uh, portal in the ceiling. And we like to get there at the time of day when the sun's rays are coming in. And it's always fun to, to stand in, in those rays and get a picture made. It's really a great, uh, just a great picture moment. This is my wife, Claire, actually on the first visit that, that she made to the Temple of Seti at Abydos. And again, it's just something we, we really enjoy doing. This is me. So now we're searching for the magic frequency. When we start with 100 hertz, when we look through the microscope to see if anything's happening, we watch for five minutes. Nothing happens. We try hundreds and hundreds of... I'm in the beam. Sort of my beam me up Scotty moment. Well, what was fun about this last tour back in February uh, of 18 is that uh -huh. this scene was taken by multiple people from, from different perspectives. One of our guests, Kathy Beckman, took this really extraordinary picture. Um, it was really cool because it, it shows my face, as you can see, just all lit up like I'm some kind of a plasma being myself. It's fun, right? Um, like... I can visualize myself as a plasma being through this photo. I become one with the sun. I become like the sun, like Amun and like Nechetsuk said. But what was really fantastic about this photo is that what people started to see up above the, 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 the doorway, can you see this sort of illuminated almost figure emerging from the wall? I'll go back so you can train your eye to it. It's just above the doorway. It's a, what appears to be a white-robed figure. Well, when we saw that, we had all kinds of fun with speculating about who that could be, what that could be. Is that, in fact, some kind of a, uh, a, a white-robed figure that is not on the wall, by the way? It's just a manifestation, perhaps something that has to do with the light at that moment, the camera, or maybe because people talk about this that the god beings can emerge through the temple walls in the king's chamber of the great pyramid i've heard people experience that light beings coming through the wall manifesting in 
saw that image earlier of what could have been Sekhmet or Fatah coming out of the wall. And now, just for fun, conversation's sake, we've got another. And the figure seems to match what we see of other images of white-robed figures at the Temple of Seti or in the tomb of Seti. Um, so let's just for fun compare this and just ask, wow, is it is it possible that maybe Ptah or maybe some other white-robed figure, one of the avatars of Abydos perhaps, came out of the wall temporarily to pay us a visit or just to give us a little bit of fun conversation for our webinar here. I don't know. I, I just think it's 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 a really cool photo, and it's it's fun to think that, that maybe just maybe um, these higher beings were present with us on this particular tour, as they have been elsewhere. The the, the the image is similar to what we see in some of these cave paintings that well, people get really excited about as evidence of early examples of extraterrestrial beings. Well, maybe they're always there. Maybe they are in those temple walls. And it's up to us to heighten our sense of perception so that we can actually perceive these things. Really fun to think about. Okay, so SETI. Did he, in fact, know the secret of human transfiguration? I'm still operating on the premise that he did and continuing my research. And one of the places where we do research on King Seti, of course, is his tomb, which is one of the most incredible tombs of all of them in the Valley of the Kings. It is in pristine condition, and throughout the tomb we see some absolutely stunning depictions of Ptah. Ptah, uh, I'm, I'm going to argue, is the initiator of the SETI. If SETI learned the secrets of transfiguration, I'm, I'm believing, suggesting that he got them from Ptah. What gives me or, or, or prompts me to, to come to that line of thinking is this image here that's actually in, in the Temple of SETI at Abydos, where we see SETI in the tree of life in the sycamore tree kneeling before Ptah. And Ptah is writing the secrets of the hundreds of thousands of years into Seti's palm, while Horus is sitting behind him, also attuning him. I, I take that pretty literally, that, 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 that if Seti has the nerve to tell us on his walls that he has become a god, then he might have served the, the gumption to show us how this might have happened. And here's that scene where Ptah is actually writing the secrets of ascension, the secrets of the hundreds of thousands of years into the, into the palm of his hand. We see these scenes elsewhere. At Karnak, for example, where Seti has himself portrayed with Ptah once again, with the secrets of the hundreds of thousands of years, the secrets of ascension, and Seti being led in this procession where he is going to receive that, that knowledge. Once again, kneeling in the sycamore tree. Behind him is the god Thoth, the god of divine magic and alchemy. Something I want you to think about as you're looking at the sycamore tree is that it looks surprisingly or suspiciously like a human brain with its dendrites or its nerves. The, the neurons, the, the neural network, and... Hi, my name is Eric Ruiz.
on my own when I decided to see whether or not this would work for me. So on top of doing a full-time job, by the end of 2014, I earned about $5,000. I continued to try it out and try to figure out different ways of being a professional speaker in 2015. And by the end of that year, I earned about $9,000 on top of a full-time job. But it was in December of 2015 that was a game changer for me. You see, I learned about Grant Baldwin and his program, Book and Paid to Speak. I consumed that course. I purchased the course, went through it in December of 2015. I applied what I learned in 2016, and by the end of the year, I earned $35,000. I had huge momentum at that point, using what I learned from Grant and from his system. And in 2017, I continued to apply what I learned in the course, and I'm happy to report I just did my taxes, I'm happy to report that I had 53 paid speaking gigs and earned $150,000 as a professional speaker on top of a full-time job using Grant Baldwin's system for public speaking. Now, folks, this is what $150,000 in checks look like. It's fantastic. Now, using Grant's system, I continue to use it so far this year. I have 23 gigs already booked. I even have a gig booked in 2019, and I'm projected to earn about $200,000 this year in 2018. And I'm happy to say I'm in the process of transitioning into being a full-time public speaker, working on my own, because of the book and pay-to-speak system. So whether you want to be a full-time speaker or a part-time speaker, or maybe you just want to see if this works for you, I highly recommend you check this course out. And what you're going to learn is all the ins and outs of how to run a speaking business, how to get gigs, how to follow up, the email process, the contracts, all the things that help me get to where I'm at right now, and I continue to learn. Grant system is fantastic. So I hope you check it out, and when you do, you'll, you'll plug into the book and paid to speak community and hang out with speakers like myself, and we can help each other, we can learn from each other, and I look forward to seeing you there and seeing you out on the speaker's trail. Again, my name is Eric Green. I am a professional public speaker because of the book and pay-to-speak system. Thank you, Grant Baldwin, and I'll see you guys out there on the trail.
makes me wonder if, in fact, what the this temple depiction is, is showing us, what we're seeing here at Karnak, is this attunement scene where Seti is having his consciousness attuned or adjusted by Thoth. What Thoth is doing is writing the divine name into that tree. We can think of this as Thoth writing the divine name. We're reprogramming Seti's consciousness and attuning him for his ascension. As the scene continues, you see on the very far left is Seti kneeling. Thoth has written that name into his consciousness. Now Seti is holding the name. He's kneeling within that tree. The next figure that we see is the cat-headed or lion-headed goddess Sekhmet, who holds the also the secret of the hundreds of thousands of years. Seti is kneeling receiving the secret of the hundreds of thousands of years from Horus. Both of these god beings are, are offering him the secret of ascension. And we can see that Seti is wearing a very, very peculiar or very powerful looking headpiece. This headpiece is actually the clue that tells us that this is his illumination for ascension ceremony. The name of that headpiece is called the Shesed Cyclic, or Circlet rather, the Shesed Circlet, which Shesed means luminous. And textual evidence for the term luminous can be found in the pyramid text as well as in later funerary literature where they denote the radiant appearance of the stellar gods, or plasma beings, and of both and the deceased. This crown the circlet appears in conjunction with the, with the transfiguration of Osiris. And here is Seti once again wearing it at uh, Menadat Habu, suggesting to us that his consciousness has been attuned by the gods and he has now received the secrets of luminosity of becoming a plasma being like the gods. Now, returning to the Temple of Seti at Abydos, we come into one of its seven chapels. This is the Osiris Chapel, dedicated to the Egyptian god of resurrection, Osiris. And on that wall, we see what I refer to as the Osiris device. In the story of Osiris, he is disassembled by his jealous brother, Seth. He's disassembled into 15 pieces. His wife, Isis, searches for and recovers those pieces and reassembles Osiris. Osiris's head is kept at Abydos. What we're looking at here, in what I refer to the Osiris device, is actually the head of Osiris. This doesn't look like any kind of a human type of a being. This is clearly some kind of a device. And I refer to it as a device because the word device means a sign, a seal, a tool, and an appliance. And when you ask the question, what does the head of Osiris do as a device, you find out that it is the Egyptian symbol for the hope for resurrection. What that means is that it is a resurrection device. A re 
resurrection symbol. It is the Egyptian symbol for resurrection. Just like the cross is the Egyptian symbol for, or is the Christian symbol for resurrection, this is the Egyptian symbol for resurrection, and it's the head of Osiris. Now, what's going on here? Well, here's the way I look at it. The ancient Egyptians believed the, that Osiris was an actual god-man. He was a great civilizer. He traveled the world civilizing other cultures, and it was on one of those trips after he returned that his brother Seth tricked him, put him into a sarcophagus that exactly fit Osiris' proportion, floated him down the Nile, he's cut into pieces, Isis goes and recovers all the pieces and puts him back together. Now, Osiris is a person, but he's also this device. How does that work? Well, the, the analogy I like to make is that I'm, I'm a guitar player. I play an, an electric guitar called a Gibson Les Paul. And if I'm talking with another guitar player and they say, hey man, what kind of guitar do you play? I say a Les Paul. They know that I'm referring to this specific musical instrument, electric guitar. And they also know that it's named after a jazz musician named Les Paul who gave his name to that instrument or device. I think something similar happened with Osiris. He's both the man, Osiris, and he gave his name to this device that has something to do with resurrection. What does it have to do with resurrection? What we're looking at here are scenes, by the way, from the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. This, this wall scene is about eight feet long. It was hauled off the, the wall at the Temple of Ramses II at Abydos and taken to New York City by J.P. Morgan. J.P. Morgan was the financier of this expedition. He had this cut off the wall and returned to New York. And what we're actually looking at here is a, a, a portion of that, that whole temple scene. And what we see here uh, accompanying it now is the hieroglyph to the head of Osiris. The head of Osiris has a serpent on a pole. And when that serpent on the pole is placed on top of the middle glyph, the, the glyph in between the two tet or resurrection pillars, it forms the Osiris device. So wait a minute. Haven't we been talking about a serpent on a pole? The Nehushtan, of course, of Moses, the symbol of the seraphim beings, the plasma beings. Wait, is this some kind of resurrection device, something that can turn us into plasma beings? Because after all, that is how they, we, are, we are thinking of resurrection in, in this conversation, is that we're talking about the God beings as being plasma beings who came here to assist us in our resurrection out of earthly flesh. The pyramid texts talk about how the king becomes like lightning, and lightning is plasma. And lo and behold, we have this mysterious, obviously mechanical-looking device on the wall of the Temple of Seti at Abydos. And of all things, it's got that Nehushta, serpent on a pole symbol, of the seraphim, the logo of the seraphim, who we also established are plasma beings. 
this is getting really, really interesting, isn't it? So I've made it my business. I've got dozens of uh, depictions of the Osiris device. I'm not going to get into all of them with you today, but I am going to tell you that, that this device is typically operated by the divine feminine. While it is associated with Osiris, it's usually Isis and her priestesses who operated or tended this device. In this example here, we have Isis and Seti himself is adoring or anointing the head of Osiris. <coughs> Excuse me. We notice in this scene here that the hands and faces of Isis and Seti are chopped off. This is because the ancient Egyptians believed that this scene, like other temple scenes, are magically active. As long as they were being portrayed, anointing Osiris, that anointing continued to go on for eternity. The early Christians came in and hacked off their hands and faces to sever that connection. So that now this head is no longer performing its function, its resurrection function. And it clearly holds the head of some kind of a god being. It looks to me like sort of a variation, really, of Hathor. In that, in that pillar, although it could be some other god being. I'm not sure. But isn't it interesting that this serpent on a pole that symbolizes the head of Osiris is exactly what we see in the Judeo-Christian tradition as the serpent on the tree of life, dispensing this wisdom to the divine feminine that the Judeo-Christian tradition sought to eliminate. There's a whole correspondence that we can make here. We're not going to go into detail here, but I'm just going to observe that the serpent on a pole, the Nehushtan, matches the head of Osiris. It also, of course, matches the Judeo-Christian concept of the wise serpent of Eden in the tree of knowledge. It could be that this tree is, in fact, the original tree of knowledge. Moses knew this, in my opinion. Because in the famous story, not only did Moses lift the serpent of healing in the wilderness, he also, in a famous duel with the magicians of the Pharaoh, turned his rod into a serpent. I, ha I just have to show you. I actually got one of these things at the Karnak Temple. Can you see this walking stick I have here? It's, a, it's, a, it's carved out of a single piece of sycamore, just beautiful, and it's got a serpent winding around it. And I, I just, when, I, when I'm meditating here at my desk, you know, I sometimes just like to just sit here at my desk, staring at my computer with my chin on this thing, thinking, hey, there's magic in this, in this rod. There's the possibility of turning this rod into a living serpent and back into a rod again, just like Moses did. I'm not saying I'm thinking I'm like Moses or anything, but I am looking at this thinking, how would that be possible to transmute one thing into another? That's what the secret of ascension is, isn't it? It's, it's, it's how do we transmute one thing into another? Solid, liquid, gas, plasma, they're all interchangeable, perhaps, is what they're telling us here. We can turn one thing into another. But where I'm going with this is that on one of my tours, we hired one of the most spiritual guides in, 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 in ancient Egypt, or in, in, in modern Egypt, who knows the secrets of ancient Egypt. And I was talking with them about this Osiris resurrection.